All right, well, welcome um, to Praxis. My name is Alan, for those of you who may be newer. Um, I am one of the pastors at Lighthouse, and uh, I get the privilege and blessing to serve in Praxis, our young adult ministry. Uh, there are a lot of changes, potential changes coming up for our fellowship group. So um, on behalf of the leadership, I did want to communicate and kind of tell you um, the direction we're heading as a group. So right now we just finished our last season of small groups and um, we are actually going to be moving for a hybrid format in the near future. Um, so we are preparing for that as a leadership, the core staff. Uh, but in the meantime, in the interim, um, we, we are gonna, you know, for, for this week as well as next week, uh, we'll be having more of an ad hoc discussion group um, where randomized gender specific uh, discussion groups with volunteer facilitators um, kind of directing and steering the conversation. So be kind to them for their uh, graciousness, for their sacrifice in, in serving us in this capacity. And so this will kind of be the format for this week as well as the following week. And then uh, the week after that, which is March 17th, we will have our online event, um, our usual monthly online event. And then we are hoping if everything goes well and um, there are no bumps in the road, then we aim to have our first outdoor service uh, March 25th. So at the end of uh, this month, um, keep in mind, we hold that date uh, loosely. This is all tentative. Uh, we, we want to make sure that we're able to gather uh, safely, um, but it will be a tremendous blessing and joy to be able to uh, worship together in person. Um, so we are doing a lot of planning. Uh, we, we are asking that you guys pray for us as we think through all the logistics and uh, administrative stuff that uh, will be involved in holding both online as well as outdoor service. Uh, we will need people to serve in, in different ways. And so uh, if you're interested in that, you can let us know. We actually have a form. Um, let me see if I could drop it in the chat or someone can drop it in the chat. Um, that if you guys haven't filled out, um, you can go ahead and fill that out. It'll really serve us well and give us insight into where people are, who's willing to pitch in and, and help. Um, but again, all this to say, uh, please be patient with us. Uh, we thank you for your flexibility and grace as we uh, try to do uh, what's best for our group. We know that it might not be um, what whatever to, to everyone's liking or to their standard, but uh, we hope that this will be something that um, is, is, is a blessing for a praxis. And ultimately we trust God, right? That uh, he promises to build his church and uh, that um, this, will, this will foster greater love for Christ and love for one another. So that's just a brief update. And on that note, I do, uh, again, want to thank you for tuning in to Praxis. As a fellowship group, we just started our exposition of the book of Romans. And so tonight, we'll actually be in Romans chapter 1, verses 8 to 17. So you can go ahead and open your Bibles. I'll read our passage for us and then pray for our time. Romans 1, 
beginning in verse 8. This is the word of God. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray. God, we do not want to treat your word lightly because we understand that your word indeed is living and active. Lord, that you have given us your word to reveal how glorious you are, that you are God worthy of praise, worthy of our affections, worthy of our very lives. And we pray that from your word, we would be compelled all the more to honor and worship Christ. That the gospel would be uh, not some neat Bible trivia to know or information that's stored in our heads. But Lord, it would pierce our hearts. It would leave us undone and unraveled that we are amazed at who you are and what you've done. At the grace you've shown us in the good news of Jesus Christ, that our hearts would be arrested by his compassion, by his love, uh, Lord, by his wisdom. And then it would be our desire to follow after him. And so use your word to bruise us of our egos, that we might be humble and malleable before your word, that you might shape and make us more like your son. We pray that you would increase our joy in Christ, and that you would prepare us now uh, with much humility and um, tenderness to receive your word. Uh, We pray for your help. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we saw last time, for those of you who were with us, uh, Paul is a man clearly defined by one thing, the gospel. So much so that it even oozes and seeps into his introduction, verses 1 to 7. Uh, The gospel is everything to him that it comes out from everywhere from him. And it's obvious even in our passage, as we've just read, that in sharing ministry updates and chopping it up with the Romans, the gospel is in the background of verses 8 to 15. And when Paul actually gets down to business and starts to write the main body of this book, this letter, the gospel is featured in verses 16 and 17. It's inescapable for Paul. So before we dig in, I hope that's automatically convicting. 
I hope on a big picture level, this pulls us back and forces us to evaluate our own lives. Is the gospel something we simply know? Is it something we just compartmentalize in our lives into one sector? Maybe we place it into the religion box or the weekend box of how we live. Or is the gospel the sphere in which we have our very being? Tonight, we see how the gospel is the engine to everything that Paul does. And we'll observe this in how the gospel is central because the gospel transforms relationships and how the gospel is front and center. The gospel is the thesis of Romans. So first, the gospel, the gospel transformation of relationships. So that's our first point if you're taking notes. The gospel transformation of relationships. Look again at verse 8. Paul begins by saying, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, who I'm, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers. We'll stop there. Now, as Paul customarily does in many of his letters, he uh, greets and thanks those that he writes to. Now, before we dismiss this as just the typical godly thing that the Apostle Paul does, I want to remind you of the circumstances surrounding their relationship. Paul has never met these Roman Christians. He's never talked to them on the phone or seen them face to face. He's only heard about them. And yet, that doesn't prevent Paul from giving thanks to God. In fact, Paul discloses he prays for them without ceasing, mentioning them always. It sounds like a stretch, right? A little bit of exaggeration if we said it. But to back up his claim, Paul puts God down as his reference. God is witness. He himself would confirm and validate Paul's thanksgiving, Paul's prayers. You see, the gospel crosses boundaries that are common to the world. We usually hardly give a second thought to people we don't know. But Paul's interaction with these Christian acquaintances is convicting stuff. His thinking of them leads to his thanking God for them. I mean, there's a whole chain of challenges here that we ought to consider. I mean, first off, are we thinking of others? Or in today's day and age, are we so absorbed with what's going on in our lives? Uh, the, the projects to finish, the, the bills we need to pay, the appointments we need to make. And we continue on, next link in this convicting chain, does our thinking prompt us to pray? If prayer is one of the primary avenues by which we worship God and love others, do people merely stay lodged in our minds or have they trickled down to our hearts where we are lifting them up in petition to God? Now, how about this final link? In addition to praying for each other, are we praising God for each other? So much of our prayer times can be filled with requests and pleas. And certainly there is a place and time for that. 
But let me ask, is there room in your prayers to thank God for your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? Remember, Paul has never interacted with these saints. While many of us have shared meals, we've studied the word together, celebrated birthdays, been classmates in college. Have we carved out space in our prayers to thank God for one another? You see, when we practice this, it actually trains us. It trains us to see and appreciate the presence of God's grace. It keeps us sensitive to the gospel in each other's lives. And look, these prayers of thanks, they don't have to be super extravagant or complicated. Just mimic the apostle. What compels Paul to thank God? Well, it's right there. Because your faith, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. It's that basic. Paul's not fixated on magnificent achievements or how many dollars they have committed to ministry. He doesn't even mention anything about the quality or maturity of their faith. Paul's simply grateful for their faith. He sets the bar super low. There are Christians in Rome? Praise God. Praise God. When the gospel is deep in us, we begin to detect the faintest sign of it in others. Praxis, are you easily moved to prayer and praise? Does the sheer fact that there are other Christians, even as you look on your screen, does that fill you with gratitude to God? And I admire the scope of Paul's reach here. He's grateful, not for his favorites, not for a select few. He says he's grateful for all of you. The whole shebang, no exceptions. You know, when I was a college pastor many years ago, uh, there were a lot of socially, let's say, awkward kids in the group. Uh, just really strange. They didn't know how to carry a normal conversation. You know, you say hi to them and they would like freeze up and say bye automatically. It's just really bizarre. And if you were under my ministry back then, obviously I'm not talking about you, other people. So don't worry. Uh, but I learned something during those years. Something very important. That the weirdos and outcasts of society, they kept coming, not because I was some excellent preacher or we had amazing programs for them. They came because they felt loved. They came because they were exposed to the gospel lived out before them, where misfits fit into the family of God, where they were cared for, regardless of how awkward they were. Isn't that the beauty of the church? The power of the gospel lived out in loving community, something that transforms us. Where else can you go? Where else is God praised for the slightest glimpse of faith where relationships are radically transformed? Strangers made siblings, brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is so timely because we'll need to Keep this focus as we navigate through the uniqueness and challenges of hybrid ministry, of hybrid format. We'll need this truth, the truth of these verses, to ensure that no one is forgotten, that we stay united as a fellowship group, as the body of Christ. 
how we continue from where we left off, Paul displays another way that the gospel transforms our relations, not only in our thanking and praying, but as we see in verse 10 and 11, our encouraging of one another. He says, always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. If I came up to you on your birthday excited and I informed you, hey, I have a present for you, uh, you would probably be just as excited, curious as to what I got you. But if I followed it up and I said, I got you a present, a spiritual present, uh, you might be a little disappointed, right? That, that goes to say something more about us than it does the Apostle Paul. But in the Apostle's mind, this is one of the best ways he can serve and bless these Romans. By presenting them a spiritual gift. What is this spiritual gift? To be honest, um, I'm not sure. Uh, it could be Paul's apostolic ministry, his call to preach to the Gentiles. And so maybe he's going to come and teach them more about God or minister to them in some special capacity. While we can't be sure of the precise nature of this gift, what we can be sure about is its purpose. The text tells us the spiritual gift is to strengthen the Romans, to build them up, to benefit them in fortifying their faith. Now, this can come off a little arrogant, right? I, the amazing apostle Paul, wish to come and bless you so that you can be spiritually strengthened. Well, so to clarify any miscommunication, Paul backpedals a little bit in verse 12. He says, so for I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is that we, so it's communal now, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. It's a two-way street here. You see, when faith comes together, it's sharpened. And many of you know this, and many of you have experienced this. Maybe at first you drag your feet to small group or you're tempted to whine about having to wake up early to set up chairs. But what happens when you show up? You are enriched by the insight of others, even if you're the one in charge of facilitating and leading discussion. You arrive to set up chairs only to be humbled and stir stirred up by the example of others who have arrived an hour before you. And they're still smiling while stacking and unloading chairs. Most of the time, you see, when you serve, you find yourself served. Because it's placing you in a context, in the pathway to witness and see God at work. Now, I'll confess, this happens to me every Thursday, even over Zoom. Or just from my conversations with you. You know, sometimes I'm dumb and I can uh, foolishly assume from my job title, you know, well, I'm Pastor Allen, look at me, I'm large and in charge. So I'm just going to show up to praxis, drop some truth bombs and leave the masses in awe and peace out. But in reality, most of the time, I'm the one who's blasted. I'm the one who's encouraged by your faith. And people have reached out to me to ask me for my thoughts on an equipping seminar that they want to do on stewardship or a book uh, to use for discipleship or how we can be more welcoming to newcomers. 
I've watched uh, your core staff sacrificially laboring behind the scenes to plan events or to check up on those on the fringes. Uh, there's some praxis people who gather every Thursday that we have a normal service to pray for this service, to pray for all of you, myself included. And I know there's a group in praxis also is memorizing. They are memorizing the book of Romans, keeping pace with the passages that we study here. They actually even invited me to join and asked me to participate. And I said, no, I can't. I just can't hang. But it goes to show how much godlier you guys are. And at the end of the day, I am both perplexed and blessed because I wonder, you know, who's the pastor here? Who's ministering to who? But really, what a joy. And if you think about it, if, if the super Christian, the apostle Paul, has no problem admitting how he needs mutual encouragement. Are any of us exempt? I know I need this. And my guess is you do too. And that's why the context of this encouragement is so crucial. Look at verse 11. Paul announces, I long to see you. Verse 13, I have often intended to come to you. You can see his desire leaping off the page. He wants to be with the Romans. In fact, look at how badly he wants this. Verse 10, asking. He's always praying, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. And key in on that one word. Somehow. Somehow. Paul doesn't care about the actual itinerary. If he has to travel in a roundabout way to get to Rome or, or, or to go under uh, cold temperatures, he doesn't care about flying first class or, or the kind of accommodations he'll receive when he arrives. You know, his cry is, God, please, just get me to the Romans somehow, some way. Essentially, anyhow, anyway. I think the application is obvious for us as a group. You know, I know online streaming isn't the same as our normal pre-COVID services. And I know even in-person gatherings under a tent where we're masked and distanced is still not the same as it once was. But our relentless desire should be to be with the people of God somehow. The gospel transforms our relationships where the longing of our hearts is to be together. I mean, you'd be suspicious about a dating couple that enjoys their long distance relationship more than being together, right? Sure, they might make it work. They adjusted different time zones and leverage technology like FaceTime so that they can stay connected and chat, but it's only temporary. Given the option, it's not even a choice. There is no ultimate or sufficient substitute than being together. Is it any different for the family of God, for brothers and sisters in Christ? The congregation, by its very definition, is meant to congregate. The church is a local assembly. 
So then it's not a matter of choosing between preferences of whether online or outdoor service is more of our cup of tea. No, our default setting is to be together rather than apart. And that means unless we have good reason to refrain, we should be striving to meet. And I say all this as delicately as possible. Yes, some of you have legitimate cause to be away. But others of you may need to search your heart and honestly examine what's leading you to decide one way or the other. And I'll leave it at that and trust the Lord to work. Regardless, whether present or away, the game plan for the Christian life and Christian relationships, it doesn't change. Our endeavor is to be productive. Look at verse 13. Did you catch that in verse 13? Paul says, I have often intended to come to you. Why? In order that I may reap some harvest. Now, what does that imply? What does that require or presuppose? That though absent, Paul expects fruit to be cultivated. The soil is still being tilled. The fields are still pruned and nourished. There will be a harvest when Paul finally arrives, whether that's today or 10 years from now. Is he locked down or not? The time to grow is always now. Listen, these don't have to be wasted days. In God's sovereign and wise purposes, even this season is intended to produce a harvest, to yield a maturity that otherwise wouldn't have been possible. So think about it. Maybe this past year has stretched you to be more proactive in following up with others. You've really had to make, make the effort. But this is God molding you so that when things open up again, taking initiative, pursuing people, is second nature. Maybe the quarantine has brought about a sobering realization that the church and the truths of scripture haven't been the loudest voices, haven't been the biggest influences in your life. Social media has. But God has graciously revealed this so that you can pivot now and anchor yourself in his word. Whatever it may be, my question is, have you taken steps to grow? Or has your waiting just made you wasteful? The gospel compels us to be transformed so that we might bring something to the table so that you and I might bless and be mutually encouraged. After all, Paul labors for the eternal good of everyone, including his ministry, not only to Christians, to those in Rome, but also non-Christians. The gospel transforms those relationships as well. Verse 14, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Paul's duty was to preach, to preach the gospel. And while Christianity is an exclusive faith, what we see here is that the invitation to such faith is inclusive. Notice the range Paul covers, Greek and barbarians wise and foolish. Back then, the Greeks were the sophisticated elite. They were known for their culture and intelligence. They were high society. On the other end of the spectrum, you had the barbarians, right? I mean, even that name is ugly, right? 
It doesn't land nicely on our ears. It's an onomatopoeia. You see, when these Neanderthals gathered and they talked, it sounded just like their name. It sounded like they were grunting, bar, 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 bar. And so they were called barbarians. They were uncivilized, low class. To sum it up, the wise and the foolish. And Paul's duty was still to proclaim the good news of Christ to both. Everyone is fair game. Paul would endorse this strategy. If it breathes, preach the gospel to it. He calls preaching his ministry obligation. This is his burden, his responsibility, his marching orders direct from God. But listen, Paul didn't embark on his mission with a poor attitude. Look at verse 15. So I am eager. So first he says, I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. And then there's a shift here. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. While it is his God-given mandate to proclaim the good news of Christ, Paul actually relishes in it. This is something he's eager to participate in. You see, when you receive salvation from God, you come to understand anything else he gives you or commands you is for your good. And therefore, duty becomes delight. Or to modernize it, our have-tos are really our get-tos. It's why spiritual disciplines are probably more accurately labeled habits of grace. Why the obligation to preach is swallowed up in the privilege to do so. To tell people the good news. So think through your situation. Consider the circles you run in. If God has given you this gospel message, given you gospel ministry, then your mission field is wherever he's currently placed you. You don't have to go across seas. You start with your family, your coworkers, your neighbors, your friends, your roommates, your landlord. The list goes on and on. It is no coincidence that some of them don't know Jesus, but guess what? You do. God doesn't do accidents. The opportunities are endless if you're looking for them. If you're eager enough to proclaim, to preach the gospel. You don't have to do it formally from behind a pulpit or a music stand. You just tell them about salvation. Freely offered through the gift of Jesus Christ. But there's another audience for our preaching we often overlook. Because in verse 15, uh, Paul makes an adjustment. In verse 14, we get the sense that Paul's preaching to unbelievers, right? But in verse 15, who does he address? Who's in Rome? The church established by the gospel. Christians converted by the good news of Jesus Christ. This is profound. It is very telling. It teaches us. Paul's philosophy of ministry is the same. Christian, you and I don't graduate from the gospel. The human body is never too good for food. No, it needs to be sustained by constant nourishment. Well, the Christian soul is never too good for the gospel. It is the very sustenance we are nourished by. Like how a fish only survives in water, so the Christian only survives and thrives in the gospel environment. 
Why? Well, this provides us the perfect transition. So we've seen how the gospel transforms relationship. And underneath that, the, the, the motivation and the reasoning behind that is because the gospel is everything. And the next two verses highlight that for us. They are the synopsis of this book. In many ways, these verses are the treasure chest from which Paul lists all these precious doctrines, these cherished doctrines that he will discuss later on. But here at the starting line, this is Paul's summary. This is his book condensed into a couple of verses. Our second and last shorter point, the gospel thesis of Romans. The gospel thesis of Romans. And there's two parts to this. First, the power of God, verse 16. So he's talking about he, why he wants to preach the gospel always. And here's his explanation. For, because I am not ashamed of the gospel. For, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Notice here, Paul's not talking about being ashamed of sharing the gospel. Like how we, we might be afraid that others will mock us or belittle us or call us stupid for believing in Jesus. That's just the side effect of an offensive and foolish message to the world. Here, Paul is talking about the message itself, its veracity, its truth claims. Now, what's curious is he leads off with a negative statement. The, the apostle doesn't write in the affirmative, like, I am proud of the gospel. Paul flips it because he knows there are real concerns about being ashamed of the very gospel message itself. There is an embarrassment that follows when something we're so confident and invested in turns out to be false. You know, something mysterious happened when I was in the fourth grade. Uh, that year, on December 25th, I received a letter in my stocking, a personal note in a handwriting that I did not recognize from one Santa Claus. And I was thoroughly convinced, even as a fourth grader. After Christmas break, when we returned to school, well, I went on a bit of a rampage. I went crusading. You know, I was telling people uh, as the biggest advocate to my friends and classmates, even my teacher, Guys, Santa Claus is real. Trust me. If you don't believe me, you're the fool. I'll prove it. I'll, I got this note and I'll bring it back tomorrow. So that afternoon I go home and surprise, surprise, I couldn't find the note. I searched everywhere high and low. And finally in frustration, I asked my dad, hey, have you seen the note, the personal note I got from Santa Claus? And his terse reply was, oh, uh, we threw it away. And I was just crushed. I was like, why? And my dad chuckled to himself uh, and he just disclosed, well, it's because it's fake. We had uh, our neighbor write it, right? And I felt so betrayed, right? This is my dad. And he just got stabbed in the back, right? My parents were your traditional first generation Asian parents who usually didn't make a fuss over American traditions. And yet in some diabolical scheme on a whim, they decided to jack me. Right? Why in the fourth grade? Why didn't they do this when I was in first grade when I was younger and it was more socially acceptable to believe in Santa Claus? I don't even think they remember this story, which makes it all the more uh, hideous. And it just makes them out to be monsters, at least in my mind. But I knew the next day at school, 
I was going to eat crow, right? I was ashamed because something I earnestly believed to be true actually wasn't. And here we too should shrink back from banking our lives on the gospel, but only if it's not true. Paul has declared elsewhere in 1 Corinthians, if Christ never resurrected from the grave, then we as his followers are to be the most pitied because we are building our lives on a lie. But Jesus, Jesus is alive. The tomb is empty. You see, the good news is not only good because of the story it tells. The good news is good because this story is no fairy tale. It's true. We need not be ashamed of the gospel because it gives us the truth about our origins, our sin, our savior, and our salvation. The gospel is the true story about the power of God. How would you weigh or observe the power of God. There are some good options. You know, peer through a telescope and be stunned by the expansiveness of the galaxy that he created. Or you could tally up the number of people God has defeated in the Old Testament, or the number of angels he has at his disposal. But Paul directs us elsewhere. This verse pinpoints the invincible power of God demonstrated where? In salvation, he says, that God flexes his divine muscles in saving wretched sinners. That there's nothing that displays the indomitable power of God more than taking hell-bent, selfish rebels and redeeming them into saints marked by love, secure for heaven. Praxis, you don't need to witness a miraculous healing or see some supernatural fireworks in the sky. Paul is handing us the binoculars and he has us gaze at the cross. The power of God is contained in the gospel, which means this, whenever the gospel of God is rightly divided and declared, the power of God is unleashed. Do you believe that? Do you want to see the power of God, then preach the gospel. Preach the gospel to others and marvel when sinners are rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred in the kingdom of God's Son. Preach the gospel to yourself. Find your second win as the potent truth of the gospel of salvation renews your vigor to resist temptation and to press on in the obedience of faith. This is why we return to the gospel. And it feels so plain, right? Like we're always looking for ways to convince or persuade or or, or strategies so that we might be sanctified all the more. But at the end of the day, we rehearse the gospel because it is the arena, the prescribed method, the place in which God showcases and supplies his strength. Now, if the gospel is the power of God for salvation, What are the mechanics of this? Verse 17 outlines it for us. The second part of the gospel thesis of Romans is the righteousness of God. So verse 16 highlights the power of God. And now we look at the righteousness of God. Verse 17, for in it, in this gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith 
for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. A righteousness is such a big and loaded theological word. We can get lost in its meaning. And this is what the German monk Martin Luther wrestled with about 500 years ago. When he came across this verse, Romans 1.17, he was stumped. Initially, he understood it as just the righteous standard of God, that God in his perfection and holiness dwells in unapproachable light, that sinners cannot come before him. So what chance then does a criminal have with a God who is righteous and who always does what is right, including judging and punishing those who are wrong? Luther thought to himself, well, I got to figure this out. I, I got I to gotta come up with a solution to rectify this situation. And he attempted to measure up to God's righteous perfection by living a life of asceticism, self-denial, doing his best, best to be righteous. But his conscience always pricked him because small or big, he would always falter. He'd always fail. He would sin. And Luther feared that there was always some unconfessed sin hanging over his head that would leave him at odds with the righteous God. And it tormented him. It meant there's no peace with the righteous God. There's no hope. And he kept running that phrase over and over, the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God, until it finally broke him, until it dawned on him. Maybe I have it backwards. You see, if he couldn't get back to God on his terms, on his own effort, his volition, maybe that meant God, this righteous God, had to come on God's terms. If Luther was powerless to affect and produce the righteousness God required, perhaps the solution was for God himself to do it. And therein, this verse exploded before him. Yes, God's righteousness is perfect and an impossible standard, but that is precisely the point. It is in our utter helplessness, our complete bankruptcy, in our unrighteousness, we are forced to look outside of ourselves. That in our desperation, we can only cry out for God who is righteous. Righteous is enough to satisfy his own righteousness. And that's when the scales fell off of Luther's eyes. We must be given this righteousness to be justified, not by our own works, but by the works of another. To be credited with an alien righteousness, a debt paid off by the wealth of another. And at last, the verse turned on its head and Luther embraced it, no longer as painful, but as precious. Because in confessing his own unrighteousness, then and only then could he claim the righteousness of Jesus Christ. How Paul announces the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. From faith for faith. It's very catchy, right? But what does it mean? Scholars and theologians have battled over how to interpret this. They've spilled a lot of ink. But some get so nuanced, I think they miss the force for the trees. Zoom out, and the larger takeaway is kind of obvious. Faith here 
plays a central role, right? From faith for faith. Paul is dressing it up in a fancy way only to emphasize and stress how indispensable this faith is. This is how we appropriate the righteousness of Christ, how Jesus' life, death, and resurrection are applied to us. It is by faith. Faith is the arm extended with an open hand to receive the gracious gift of the gospel. And this salvation is ours from faith when we personally believe. But instead of thinking that this is just a one-time transaction, Paul pens for faith to communicate that this is then the pattern for life. That at the point of salvation and into eternity, so we place our faith in Christ, yes, at that point of conversion, when we are transformed and made a child of God. But then that faith in Christ remains in Christ. And that is how we then live. We believe and we keep believing. And this becomes the ecosystem that we inhabit. We don't believe Jesus once and then move on. No, in him we live, move, and have our being. That the righteous shall live by faith. To prove that this is not some novel concept, Paul quotes the Old Testament. He cites Habakkuk 2.4, where the prophet Habakkuk is troubled and scared. You see, during his time, Habakkuk sees the foreign powerhouse Babylon coming to invade and crush Judah, to destroy the people of God. And he is confused. He's questioning God. How will we ever get out of this mess? And the Lord answers Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. The principle has always been the same. This is the tried and true method, not by their own might, not by their own ingenuity. Things will only be made right by trusting in God. The righteous shall live by faith. You see the connection now? Whether you're up against a terrifying enemy or you're up against the unshakable guilt of your sin, the only way forward is to cling to God, is to live by faith. And Paul is reinforcing how this has always been God's M.O., if this is how God has operated in the Old Testament in the past, and if this is how God prescribes us to live in the present at the time of Paul's writing, then you can be sure this is what he desires today and into the future. That the righteous shall live by faith. And that's how we take hold of God's righteousness, of God's strength, a power then that transforms everything, that converts us so thoroughly, it shapes then our relationships with one another, to our ministry and ambition to life, to even these two verses in which God, uh, in which Paul unravels his aim and thesis for the book of Romans, that the gospel is central to the Christian life, both in his literature as well as in his relationships. And it ought to be for us as well. Let's pray. Lord, often we're we're so easily swept away by the latest fad, uh, the newest trend. But God, may we just be students of your word. May we be experts in, in one thing, in one thing alone, uh, the gospel. For in it, it is your power, it is your righteousness revealed 
and it revolutionizes, radically changes everything about us from our thinking uh, to what we do with our time, to how we relate with one another, seeking to edify and serve, lifting each up in, in prayer, to the proclamation of this good news that is so valuable and precious to us. We cannot, uh, we cannot just hold it in, but it must go out from us. And so, Lord, we pray that your word would continue to examine us to surface ways in which we have been living inconsistently. Uh, we pray that you would give us grace to repent and uh, we plead uh, with you for, for the strength and power uh, to be obedient to your word, to align ourselves with the truth of scripture, that we may honor Christ, that we may love him more because uh, we've seen his love, we've tasted his goodness, and we desire uh, to live for him. And so, Lord, be, be with us tonight, even as we uh, sing songs, as we go into dis a time of discussion, that it would all uh, direct our attention uh, to your son. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.